Welcome to the MFP Live podcast. I'm producer Courtney Monkier. On this episode of MFP Live, Donna Ladd and Kimberly Griffin are joined by sociologist and author Jesse Daniels. Jesse Daniels' book, Nice White Ladies, discusses the role that white women have played in white supremacy, both historically and currently, as well as the ways that they can join in the fight to overcome it. They also discuss ways in which white feminism can serve to undermine the causes of people of color, even when that is not the intent. Daniels is a professor of sociology, Africana studies, and critical social psychology at Hunter College and the Graduate Center, both affiliates of Center University of New York. Here's Donna. So tonight we're going to talk about white women. Uh, our guest tonight is Jessie Daniels. She is the author of Nice White Ladies, The Truth About White Supremacy, Our Role in It, and How We Can Help d- Dismantle It, meaning we white ladies. She is a professor of sociology at Hunter College and a faculty affiliate in Africana Studies, Critical Social Psychology, and Sociology at the Graduate Center, both colleges of City University of New York. And she's a faculty associate at the Harvard Berkman Klein Center. Jessie has been recognized internationally for expertise in the area of internet manifestations of racism. And she's been a scholar in the area of race and racism as it presents in various forms of media for more than 25 years. And I can say this, Jessie and I have been in some rooms together for discussions of the rise of hate, white nationalism, and other similar threats, you know, soft topics. And we're thrilled to have her here to talk about white ladydom tonight. So welcome, Jessie. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. It's good to see you again, uh, Donna, and it's great to be with you, Kimberly. And I was very good excited about saying, about saying white ladydom out loud. I will say that. <laughs> Uh, so, so Jesse, in your book, let's get right to the white lady yeah. point, and then we'll yeah. just take it out wherever this conversation goes. But mm-hmm. early in your book, you start out saying, I have spent half my life in a conscious effort to not be a nice white lady. Now, we live in the Deep South. <laughs> I probably don't even have to follow that up, but a lot of us are told you know, whether or not we accept it from a young age, but we're told that we're supposed to be nice white ladies or at least nice yeah. ladies. And yeah. the assumption yeah. is nice white ladies. Yep. Tell us what you mean by nice white yeah. lady. Yeah. So the title of the book, Nice White Ladies, is meant to be a kind of play on words. And it's a little bit a riff and an acknowledgement of the really wonderful podcast by Hannah Jaffe Walt called Nice White Parents looks at progressive women in New York City who say that they're for school integration, but then do the opposite when it comes time mm-hmm. to school their own children. And it, it really is meant to be a play on, on all three of the words in the title, nice white ladies. And in a way, part of what I'm trying, my contribution, I think, in this book is to try and upend each one of those. What does it mean to be nice, really? What does it mean to be white? And what does it mean to be a lady? And, you know, like you, I was raised in the South. I grew up in, in Texas. And many of the lessons, I talk a lot about sort of personal stories in the book, but many of the lessons that I received growing up were really around these three ideas, right? To be to be nice, to be white, and to be a lady were really the sort of marching orders that I got growing up. And, you know, I, I talk about my mother in the book a lot, and she, you know, was often the purveyor of these of these lessons, you know? And one of them I remember 
growing up, like I can just hear my mother's voice saying this even now is pretty is as pretty does, you know, and the, the message that we're supposed to get from that is that you, you couldn't actually achieve niceness by just looking pretty that you also had to be sort of nice in your interactions with people. But part of what I argue in the book is that that niceness really covers up a lot of oppression, basically, that we're covering for by being nice, we don't speak up when it's time to speak up. And that also, you know, goes with the with the ladyhood and the whiteness too, that there are lots of ways in which the smooth operation of white supremacy as a system, I really mean it as a structural issue and not just the people in the funny hat, but the way that that system operates really relies on us as nice white ladies to continue operating. Yeah, well, it's funny because I was thinking when I was uh, reading your book, one of the first things I had, early things I had to deal with was just this idea that I was supposed to be uh, prim and I was supposed to be agreeable, right? Or smile on demand, or I was kind of a girl toy, you know, in the mm-hmm. sense of we're supposed to, there, there are things we're supposed to do. But I think your your explanations in this book, I think are are very powerful about how that then is weaponized which is what you're saying, you know, it's kind of like, it's not, it's not just for us that we need to not go along with this white ladydom, right? Oh, nice white ladydom. Um, I'm going to say that a lot. It's also to then get past that and recognize just how harmful and dangerous that has been throughout our history. So, Talk yeah. a little bit more about that, maybe maybe yeah. an example or two of what you're saying. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, but part of the argument in the book, right, is that this nice white lady dumb, as you're calling it, <laughs> is um, is corrosive to us. Like internally, mm-hmm. there are ways in which it, it eats us up inside in a particular way, that kind of pretending to be nice, um, buying into whiteness in a particular way. And, you know, and feminists have done uh, more than 20 years of work on sort of deconstructing ladiness. Like, who wants to be a lady in this day and age, right? So part of the message is about the corrosiveness to us as nice white ladies. But that corrosiveness does real damage in the culture. And one of the examples that I talk about in the book that I, you know, will bring up here since we're coming from Mississippi is, is, you know, the murder of Emmett Till. Emmett Till was a child, as you all know, there in Mississippi. He was 14. And it was Carolyn Bryant, a nice white lady, who pointed her finger at him. And that accusation, the pointing her finger at him, is what ultimately led to his death. And then some decades later, you know, Carolyn Bryant, now Donham, Carolyn Bryant Donham tells uh, an investigator that that none of that happened, that Emmett Till never approached her, never talked to her, never whistled at her, never touched her, right? So her accusation alone was enough to get that young boy killed. And that continues today. I think about Amy Cooper, the woman who got memed as Central Park Karen 
And she used her phone to call 911 to call the police in New York City because a black man, an African-American man, as she described him, told her to leash her dog in an area where she had the dog off leash and needed to put the dog on leash. So basically telling her just to follow the rules. And instead of saying, oh, thank you very much. Sorry, I violated the rules. And complying, what she did was she escalated it. She escalated the situation until she called 911 and told a lie. She threw her voice half an octave and said, an African-American man is threatening me, right? Like, did this performance of damsel in distress, but she did that performance with the intention of bringing down the power of the state on this very nice Black man who had asked her to leash her dog. Yeah. And there's, you know, that incident happened in late May of 2020. And it was the exact same day that, you know, we were all home because of the pandemic and watched on television as Minneapolis police officer put his knee on George Floyd's neck and squeezed the life out of him. We all watched that happen. And so for me, those two things, the Central Park Karen and uh, the murder of George Floyd are forever connected because in effect, what she was trying to do with that 911 call was to bring that power of the state down on that black man in Central Park, the same way that had come down on George Floyd's neck. And that really is the corrosive power to the culture that we have as white women. We are believed and uh, taken seriously in a way that can be harmful to other people. So that's part of what I'm trying to challenge with this book as well. One of the things it occurred to me when you were both talking about, I want to say bastardization of what a woman should be, is I do um, a certain kind of personality test work. It's called the Enneagram. You don't need to know that. But the woman who does it is from, who does one of the trainers is from Texas. And there's a certain personality type that is seen as a very helpful person. And they are martyrs. They're always helpful. They're always there when you need them. And she says she spends about half of her work helping Southern Christian women, I don't believe she said white, to understand their actual personality because they all identify as this personality. And they don't wanna be the personality that's an invest. There's all these different types, investigator, a reformer. They don't wanna be, and that they are actually these other people, but it is so disturbing to them that they would not be this helpful very nice person that our society says you are in different ways. People come at this in different ways. In the South, they use Christianity. You know, other cultures, other areas of the country use some other kind of weapon. But it was interesting to me. She says she, she, she starts there and she mostly looks at people and goes, you're not that. That's not who you are. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, because anything else, they can't imagine that they would be, oh, I'm sounding slightly warbled. Okay. Um, <laughs> they can't imagine they would be anything else. Um, so my next question to you is you talked about how, we talked about this a little bit, but we talked about how, I've seen you talk about how you don't trust white women. Now as an academic, how do you navigate that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's all so fascinating. Kimberly, thank you so much for sharing that. I'm I'm really fascinated by the enneagrams and all that technology, and I would love to I would love to know more about that about that story and that 
that person that you were sharing. I mean, I think that so much to say about that. I'm just sort of lost thinking about that. But yeah, I mean, I think there is a way. I mean, I think part of what that story illustrates, right, is that there is a kind of way that we get raised as white women, as uh, people who identify as femme, as Southern. And I want to say just a little bit about the Southernness. You know, as I mentioned, I grew up in Texas. And so I have a real, you know, Texans will tell you it's not really the South. It's we're our own country. That's a whole other discussion for another time. But but there are ways in which Texas resonates with the rest of the South. And part of that, you know, I mean, I grew up, I had to say yes, ma'am and no, ma'am to my mother and yes, sir, and no, sir to my father. And if I didn't, I was in big trouble. And so there is a way that those kinds of ways of being get internalized, you know, to us as, as human beings, just in terms of, well, I just think that's who I am, you know? And so, and so that makes a, a kind of sense. The, the other thing I just wanted to sort of, sort of highlight, you know, when you were talking about, she, she's talking to Southern women, I don't think she necessarily said white, but, you know, one of the things I often, when I'm doing presentations about this work is, is to talk about Angelina Grimke. And she has a really famous book from, I believe the 18... 30s or 40s. And it's an appeal to Christian Southern women. And part of what Angelina Grimke is doing, who is an ardent abolitionist, right, um, advocating for the abolition of slavery, part of what she was trying to do in her book, The Appeal to Southern Women, there's Angelina now, she was really trying to say, look, you may not make the laws, but you are the wives and mothers and sisters of the men who do make the law. So use that kind of provisional power to wield your influence in that way. But what I heard in your question was also another thing about, you know, part of what I say in the conclusion of the book, there's this great quote, Barbara Ransby, the wonderful historian who's talking about, you know, basically sort of a, kind of a message about find your people um, when it comes to revolution, because we need, we really need people who believe in revolutionary love to create the kind of change that we want. And my response to that, when I first read her line about it was, I don't know that I trust other white women, other white people to put love at the center of their practice, and especially revolutionary love, which is about, you know, including everyone in that embrace. And I just, you know, the kinds of messages that we're raised with as white people, and this is beyond, you know, just the South, this is the whole nation, if you will, is about individualism. It's about meritocracy. It's about you just look out for your own self and how you're achieving in this world. And then maybe you focus on your nuclear family. But beyond that, it's really this kind of aggressive individualism where, you know, we're supposed to get rid of everyone else that weighs us down as we pursue these individual goals. And that's really what I'm saying that I don't trust. It's not about individual white women or white men. It's really, or white people of any gender. It's really about what is the value at the center of our lives. And oftentimes for white people, the value at the center of our lives is about individual achievement. It's about wealth accumulation. It's about this belief in meritocracy that we're all just place that we exist in the social hierarchy is because of our own hard work and effort. And those are the people that I don't trust. You also, I want to talk a little bit more about the white woman's body as a weapon, yeah. because that was what we just talked about in the park incident during the onset of the pandemic. The, those videos were everywhere. Mm -hmm. And that was just like white women screaming there was one where woman was screaming in the middle 
of Victoria's Secrets because I think somebody wouldn't let her use a coupon or the girl <laughs> told her to get, no, what it was. She told her she was too close because of, right, Matt, you know, right. pandemic mass, we got the stickers on the floor where right. and she's screaming, yeah. flailing on the floor. But what I realized, what I saw in that moment was interesting because young white women recognized it for what it was mm -hmm. and they mm -hmm. recorded her and they came outside they used their bodies and navigated mm -hmm. the situation so that the black woman wouldn't get in trouble mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. have you seen are you seeing more of that um <laughs> I, I really don't go outside very much these days so i don't know <laughs> what's happening in the world same. <laughs> all the same Kimberly. <laughs> But uh, you talk yeah, to, no, but you I, contact I, young people. Yeah, you yeah. talk to young people yeah. more than yes. I, am, I have an I am actually, you? I am actually teaching in person. I should I should just acknowledge that. Um, yeah, no, it's a great it's a great example, and it's a wonderful question, right? Like I think there are ways that we who are raised to believe in our own whiteness and to are identified in identify ourselves or or in the rest of the world as femme that there's a way in which that construction of an identity could be used to intervene in some of these situations however <laughs> comma i do not see a lot of that happening and when it does happen it's often you know unwanted or misplaced i i think a lot about the wall of moms protests that happened in portland and a lot of people were saying aha well this this is the example right this is how white women you do it you know you put yourself your actual physical body in the space between a line of police and a line of black protesters and to the extent that that protests did that i think it was a good thing but but that protest very quickly turned into something else in which white women were basically putting themselves in the center and were not listening to the black led organizers of the black lives matter movement so i think it's absolutely possible and it's certainly one of the things that i hope to see happen for for writing this book but it's just not that common yet instead what we see is that white women experience their bodies i think in a lot of ways you know partly because of feminism we experience our bodies as a, a site of danger right and as a problem mm. to be solved there's a very old comedy routine by a comedian you probably nobody probably remembers named elaine boozler and she, she i loved her just, yeah she was great she had this one she had this one great bit that i just loved to death which was you know i'm i'm walking alone in a city i have my valuables i have a vagina there's a way in which, you know, that's kind of the message that we've gotten from feminism about our bodies is that it's this dangerous place. Yes, thank you for the reminder about who Elaine Boozler is. <laughs> I hope she's still thriving wherever she is. But I think that that's kind of the message that we've been taught from feminists, certainly the feminism that I uh, learned about and from was about, you know, the take back the night marches and to walk with our, our keys and our knuckles so that we could fight off somebody who attacked us. And that I think has become internalized. So to the extent that we think that we're doing something empowering, if we call 911, that we're doing something that's quasi feminist, if we point out somebody who is uh, threatening us or making us feel afraid. And yet we don't examine where that fear comes from, why our bodies feel like a site of uh, danger and what it is to have just, to go back to the Central Park Karen example, to have a black man simply say, 
please leash your dog that would set off a kind of set of bodily fear and emergency that if we were to take this woman at her word is what happened to Amy Cooper in Central Park. I think that there is a lot of potential in white women rethinking our bodies in the context of a police state and how we might intervene. There are wonderful organizations like Court Watchers, which is an organization in the Bronx in New York, which basically enlists people, white people, to go and sit in court and be observers in court to sort of check the process as it unfolds to sort of say, look, I'm here as a white person, I'm watching this, so you better come correct, basically. But there's just, there's not enough of that, I think. Well, and there's this idea that you just brought up that white people know best if white people are in the room, right? So Mm -hmm. if white people enter a black space they start talking and they they know what's supposed to happen if they enter um, Nice Wise Parents, which I didn't listen to all of it because um, I couldn't deal with a lot of trauma during yeah. the pandemic, but I'll go back. But there's this idea, we're here now, we've got our capes and we're going to make everything better because we're good people. And so there's this idea, I need, I need a cartoon character. This is my next, <laughs> that's my next gig. I love it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I think there is a way in which white women, especially, I mean, just think about what what we call the helping professionals, right? The helping professions, right? And if you look at at those like nurse, teacher, social worker, librarian, like just those four professions alone, those are what in sociology we call white female dominated professions, right? The the preponderance of people in those in those occupations are white women. And you know, to your point earlier about the anagram, you know, I think that that if you spoke to those people in those professions and said to them, you know, what you're doing is actually not helping, that it would be a similar kind of like, oh no, like that was the whole reason I got in this profession was to help. How can this be? So I think that white saviorism, this of showing up and being white and you know sort of taking up all the all the air in the room and deciding even though you've just shown up at a place that you're going to run for leadership in that organization i mean i think that kind of white behavior is very common but i think we as white women are like super susceptible to that kind of pull just because it so it so neatly maps onto you know what we're socialized mm-hmm to believe is required of us as human beings, you know? And then when you add the layer of of white feminism to that, which is not only is this how you're supposed to be a human being, but this is how you become an empowered, you know, woman in this society is to like take charge in these particular ways that it leads us down a, a wrong path, I think. Well, I'm thinking several things at once. So I'll see if I can like mesh this together in some kind of coherent uh question ultimately. But, you know, listening to this as a white woman and and who grew up in the South, you know, some of my first uh, thoughts, which I don't feel like this is maybe talked about enough. I mean, as far as what I hear, but is just now I'm 60. So, you know, ages, you know, generationally things may, may be a little different, but you know, that it was just the culture pounded into my head from probably before I can remember to be afraid of black men and Mm. black people, but really black men. And I say that to say that it's so sick 
that you you're just and of course it's just it's white supremacy it's racism it's the it's the way that it's all pushed forward but you know to be this child or even when you think about some of these horrible lynching photos with the children there at these events pointing and you know kids who look like I did when I was a kid or you Jesse and you know little blonde girls and all this to think about the the horrors I guess of being Mm -hmm socialized in such a way. I'm not sure I'm using the right words, but then to have to spend a lifetime, really, let's just be honest. It takes a while to get these things out of you, even subconsciously, you know, like you, uh, you, uh, you know, into my adulthood, I mean, this doesn't happen anymore, but into my adult life, if you could, if you said to me, and I was fairly, you know, you know, I was very anti-racism and all these other, but subconsciously, if you said to me, mm-hmm. there's a guy breaking into women's houses, I might see a black man first mm-hmm. because I was taught to do this yep. Yep. and it was cruel and mm-hmm. it was cruel to me and it was cruel to other mm-hmm. people. But I think what it feels like to me and it's in a lot of our violence conversations and other things, and we're kind of going through this thing now where it's another round of kind of racist violence mm-hmm. finger pointing at the capital city here because it's majority black. But a lot of women particularly, I think don't get to that point. A lot of people too, but a lot of women don't get to get to that point of interrogating it. I think yeah. that's what I'm, I'm trying to say here, mm-hmm. or they don't know how to interrogate it right. or even the reason to. Right. And so I think that, what I'm trying to say here is that I think that that that's in part what your work says to me is mm-hmm. think about this. What did that mm-hmm. mean to be a nice white girl or mm-hmm. nice, nice mm-hmm. white lady? What are your visions like in your head? What was that mm-hmm. socialization like? So that's right. not a question, but I'll throw that back to you to say. What <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, no, there's a lot, there's a lot in there. And I, you know, uh, same, I'm, we're about the same age. And what, I just want to say before, before somebody asked this question, okay, so I'm old, but that doesn't mean this is only for the old, <laughs> that there, that there are lots of young people that, that need to learn these lessons. And part of what I say about this book is, even though I'm old, I'm hoping that those of you who are younger and maybe listening to this can speed up the process. So it doesn't take quite so long for you to learn the lessons that I did. But yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, I actually learned about, I didn't learn about lynching until I was in graduate school. So this is for me in my mid twenties in Texas. Um, I had gone to public Texas public schools my whole life, including for my PhD. But when I learned about lynching, I actually learned about it first in a women's studies class. And part of the reason that I learned about it in a women's studies class is because the idea was to sort of look at the stereotypes about Black men, right? These are also sexual stereotypes that Black men are seen as inherently, you know, inclined toward rape. That was the kind of extent of our discussion. And then in the footnotes of some of those articles, I found the work of Ida B. Wells Barnett, right, who wrote The Red Record about lynching. And part of what Ida B. Wells Barnett pointed out, this is in the 1890s, part of what she pointed out is that the reason that lynching was possible, the reason that that practice continued was because of what she called the threadbare lie. And the threadbare lie was that white women were being attacked by Black men. So 
yes, part of that is about the stereotype of black men, but it's also on us. It's also on what is the construction of white womanhood in that mythology, in that threadbare lie. I mean, we would talk about it in women's studies, but we would talk about it as this ancient thing, this thing that had happened a century before. And part of what I'm trying to do is bring that work forward. I think that for a lot of white women, the idea of pointing out our whiteness, our womanhood in a way that isn't about feminism is quickly moves into misogyny. And so that's some of the pushback that I've gotten about this book that, oh, you're just, you're vilifying black, white women and you're just uh, a misogynist. <laughs> it couldn't be further from the truth. But I think that it becomes difficult for us as white women to kind of say that we have a particular identity and then it merits attention in a critical way, the mm. way that we've been critical about other people's identity and social position for decades now, right? So just one quick example, uh, in my work, since I started working on this book, I've set a Google search alert. Do you know these things where you set, you tell Google, I'm very interested in this phrase. Yeah, yeah. And then every morning you get a little email that says, here's, here's your stuff on this phrase. Mine is white women. <laughs> and this never, this is the gift that keeps on giving. It just never <laughs> fails to pay off. But, but what's interesting about this Google alert, right, is that it will surface things like this, you know, bad behavior by Central Park Karen or whoever called the police, right? It will it will surface those things. Mm -hmm. And then it will surface other things like the disparities in voting differences between mm -hmm. white women and Latinx women and black women, that sort of thing. But then there's this kind of gap in the middle, what, what some people have called a data void, where the kind of base that we take up in the culture doesn't show up in those Google search term results. One example that I, that I talk about in the book is the what magazine is it? Vanity Fair, who has a special Hollywood issue every year around yeah. this time, a little earlier. And it, it showcases, right, the actresses who are going to be nominated for the Oscars. And, you know, occasionally there'll be a Lupita Nyong'o or a Viola Davis or a Kerry Washington or an Angela Bassett. But I've just named all four. Right? <laughs> and otherwise, it's this. And Angela Whiteness. Very oh, right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. Right. But otherwise, it's the sea of whiteness, you know, mm -hmm. and you can, I mean, I ask, sometimes I ask students to do a content analysis, right? Go back and count the number of people in, in each one of these covers. How many are white? How many are black? That's what I mean about kind of the space that we take up in the culture. If you look at Hollywood, if you look at popular magazines, we are everywhere, white women. And yet, it's somehow not okay to talk about who we are as white women, what that social location, what that identity means. And I think that's really what your question sort of gets at is like, mm -hmm. how do we, how do we begin to do that self-reflexive, self-reflexive work? And I think part of the answer is just really, you know, the acknowledging that we exist, that white womanhood is a thing that we should be paying attention to, I think is important as a first step. And, you know, <laughs> I think it's okay to get a little pissed about you know, how we've been used to, you know, mm -hmm. it's like if, if you could just be self-reflective about that and say, mm -hmm. say these various, how we've been used as excuses or, uh, you know, for so much violence and, and my kind of more Mississippi example, you know, talking about lynching. I mean, we all know, mm -hmm. I hope everybody watching knows white womanhood, as you've alluded to, it was always used as an excuse for lynching. 
Um, And when we say lynching, we mean kind of extrajudicial, whether or not someone Mm -hmm. was accused, uh, like even in, in, you know, for the time in any kind of uh, credible way, which it's hard to know what that is during Jim Crow, but, or whether they just, it, it was just something people made up and went and hunted down a black man and did these horrible things when it might have, it often was about trying to register to vote or mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. selling land or mm-hmm. being successful in some way or not, uh, or challenging mm-hmm. a white man because he stole from you or something, you know, those mm-hmm. things are out there too. So, so more recently in Oxford, Mississippi here, there's been this debate over doing a lynching memorial at the courthouse. And Lafayette County happens to be one of the counties in the state of Mississippi, for those of you who don't know this, who had some of the most lynchings. So there's a number of, I think there are five, the memorial finally went up, but there are five that they are listing in there. One of them, in one case though, it was so infuriating to watch this. In one case that was part of it, it was a man who was accused, I believe, either of raping or killing a white woman, you know, kind of a a constant, especially the rape one was a constant uh, excuse used for lynchings. Sadly, typical thing of a white mob taking him out of the jail and hanging him. But here we are, and I think this was in 2020 that we first reported this, or either 2021, but after George Floyd, there is a white board of supervisor uh, member in Lafayette County, who is saying that man, and I'm forgetting his name now, the one, that that man should mm-hmm. not be included on this memorial because he attacked a white woman. And this is in like 2021. Everybody knows from the news accounts that it was extrajudicial, you know, that he right, was taken right. from the jail before he was uh, found guilty, even in wow. a kangaroo court. And this man is still saying this, you know, that, wow. that, and it just, it was just this jarring fact mm-hmm. that they had to delay the memorial to these people who were lynched because of this. I mean, it's horrifying. And, and yeah. anyway, so um, I'll kick it back to you. I'm not asking a single <laughs> question, apparently. I'm just, I'm just saying stuff and letting Jesse talk, but that's, well, that's work out. yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, that just illustrates that these issues are, you know, not in the distant past. They're with us today. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, it's on the one hand, the most generous read is that people who were making that sort of argument in the present actually don't know the history, right? That's mm-hmm. one uh, interpretation and it's a generous one. Generous, the, yes. The, <laughs> less generous read of that is that it's a kind of willful ignorance, right? And then it's a cynical move to reassert, you know, the importance of whiteness, even in a lynching memorial. And that is just, um, you know, sickening, um, for lack of a better term. Mm. It is sickening. And his name, by the way, is Loss, was Lawson Nelsie Patton, was the, the man no, who was lynched. Yes. So, Kimberly, do you want to take it? I have so many thoughts. We could be here for hours. (laughs) Um, We won't be, dear audience, but we could be. Um, A 
phenomenon that I am fascinated with, and I'm now just giving you more research. I'm just giving you more work, Jesse. I don't. <laughs> it's great. I love it's it. It's not helpful. Um, <laughs> great. I have watched a phenomenon where people, brown and um, black and brown people, who appear to have assimilated into whiteness or would be a good recruit for assimilation into whiteness are systematically being pulled from the community, right? By mm -hmm. there's the good school. Well, of course you want to date a mm -hmm. white person. Well, that's the, you, mm -hmm. so there's this, this culling of what I call, this is not the best language. So if I ever end up in front of Congress, please nobody <laughs> uses it against me. Um, the, if I end up in front of Congress, we've already created some miracles here. Oh, really, what do I have to lose at that point? <laughs> if I have, I'm testifying, I'm about to get an appointment. We've already won, people. We have won. Um, but there's this kind of systematic culling of the herd because I I contend that the numbers are not in whiteness favor. That's not in the white yeah, people's yeah. favor. Yeah. So yeah. what we've got to do now is convince you that being like us is the best plan. <laughs> So what we're going to do is we're going to make you believe that going to the good schools are the schools where you're not in the majority mm -hmm. or going to the school um, where it takes you out of your neighborhood right. or right. dating the people that don't look like your mama. I don't really care who you date, right. but I do think there's some fetishization <laughs> of uh, white mm -hmm. women. It's where, that's your peak in a lot of yep. ways yep. um and yep. i and i i'm always suspicious of people that date the, the people that all look alike I'm like that's weird i mean everybody's <laughs> kind of kind of tight but if everybody if you keep dating the same person it's strange. Right? So, some, some lessons not learned there okay. right? it's they all look like it's, it's weird uh i went on a date with a guy once and all his his ex-wife and his ex girl, I only like my cousins. And I was like, this is weird. I'm, I'm out of here. <laughs> okay. Uh, back to it. So okay. This, no, we're I, punching. I think it, we're punching. We're tired. Um, so I think there, there's that that's happening, particularly mm -hmm. in private schools and SEG academies. Um, this idea that we pull you out of your community to recruit you to the team to continue the legacy of whiteness, even though you're not quite white, you're mm -hmm. not white. So that's one thing I've seen. Um, and I'm and I don't know if this is a correlation, but you've talked about the attack on higher education. Mm -hmm. How is that playing out? How is all of that playing out in front of you? Because I, I'm wondering is the attack on higher education for some people or is it an attack on higher education for mm -hmm. all the people? I mean, this last mm -hmm. election, the resurgence of mm -hmm. the uh, HBCU mm -hmm. um, popularity that happened with a different world and yeah. you have not seen a different world and you're no. watching and listening to this, we can't be friends <laughs> until you watch it. It is about, love it's, that based, show. it's based on a um, black college kind of like Spelman or Hampton or Howard and it was one of the best things that ever happened. And it was skyrocketed HBCU enrollment. And so for me, this last election with the vice president being from um, an HBCU, cabinet mm -hmm. members, congressional leaders, we're just seeing a different, uh, where is that, what, what, what is the attack supposed to do? 
Yeah, so a couple of things, great questions. Again, I think that the the first phenomenon that you're talking about, I think is less about sort of replenishing whiteness and more about the desire among some white people for a kind of consumption of blackness, but without the burden. In one of the chapters in the book, I talk about um, love and theft and kind of the the way in which some white women are adopting black hairstyles or fashion styles. Oh, that's that yeah. Rachel. What's her name? Rachel. Well, right. Rachel Dolezal is a, kind of the big example. But I'm also talking about people like the Kardashians, right, who are like have made a mm. fortune out of identifying black styles, mm. stealing them, and then reappropriating them for their own financial gain and for the consumption of other white people. And I think that the the recruiting, you know, select black and brown people to white all otherwise all white environments is is about it's actually part of how the system sustains itself. It's how, part of how the system of white supremacy sustains itself because when that happens, when you pull in one person of another racial category into your predominantly white institution, part of what you're doing is you're, you know, for an unsophisticated audience, you're sanctifying your institution as, okay, well, it can't be that bad because they have, you know, XYZ tokens in that institution. And I think that there's also a kind of emotional or affective thing that it does for white people, like on an individual basis. It's like, oh, I got so-and-so a job. I got so-and-so into, you know, Johnny's school or whatever. And therefore I'm a good person. Like I'm not really culpable for all this other, you know, horrible system that we, that is designed for our comfort, right? So it's a, I think it, it operates on a couple of levels in, in terms of the broader uh, white supremacy. In terms of higher education, I, it's a really interesting question. And if you, there's a wonderful book by Jane Mayer called Dark Money, in which she's talking about the uh, lots of things, but among the things that she talks about is the takeover of higher education by right-wing billionaires. And part of what she traces in that um, history of the of the move into higher education by billionaires is uh, she traces this back to the early 1970s and actually the takeover at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York, of by a group of African American students who were demanding changes in the curriculum at this Ivy League institution. And in their protest, they took over an administrative building called uh, Willard and Strait Hall. Um, and this was in April of 1969. And one of the, the alums from Cornell, who was already a big donor at Cornell, had several buildings on campus named for his family, saw the pictures from that um, takeover of Cornell in 1969. They, became quite famous and circulated around the world. We're on the cover of Time magazine. That photo actually won a Pulitzer Prize that year. But for for very rich white straight men, that was uh, a harbinger. You know, it was uh, ah, this is they they have destroyed higher education and they must be stopped. And the they for these rich white billionaires was black people, brown people, queer people, women, 
you know, and so part of the both the defunding of higher education and the attacks on higher education by the far right are about who has entered the academy, right? It's us, it's queer people, it's women, it's black and brown people. And that's part of why higher education is not being funded at the rates it was when it was a predominantly white male bastion. And it's part of why the right wing sees it as such a threat. And it's part of the reason why people like Charlie Kirk of Turning Point USA exist. It's really about undermining higher education because it's seen as a threat to the smooth operation of white supremacy. And... That's so interesting, because I don't know if you know this or not, but Cornell was where a group of elite men, mostly Black men, were first able to enter higher education. Mm-hmm. So that's that's really interesting. And so now we see this attack on higher education. And I would, I, you let me know, do you, I would surmise that some of it is also that women like yourself go into classes like the one you went into and go, what? <laughs> Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's it's really about not, you know, I mean, what, you, what you'll hear from forces on the far right is that they want to make higher education safe to talk about business. But really what that agenda is doing is it's saying we want to also make it unsafe to talk about other economic systems besides capitalism. We want to talk about, you know, decolonizing your mind. Right? That, that is exactly what the far right billionaires and all the rest of them are afraid of. It is actually the core of the work that we do in higher education. I have just one little follow up and then I'll kick it back to, sure. to Donna. One of the things I was thinking about earlier is um, sometimes when I call, like I called, a, I texted actually a black woman donor, right? Mm-hmm. I was completely relaxed. I was like, hey girl, when are you back in town? Let's have some coffee. What you doing? So proud of you. Because that's the language we speak, right? Mm-hmm. And what they're also cutting off access, right? When you can't, when you don't have mm-hmm. access to the car, because nobody's making a business deal. They make a business deal, a golf course, like drinks <laughs> in a language that you may or may right. not speak. Well, now I'm black, I can code switch five or six different ways, but there's this idea we're going to cut you off from the financial prosperity as well, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, if we cut you off from this pipeline of influence. And that, that was, I was just thinking about that. Yeah, absolutely. That's definitely part of the, you know, the carrot that's, that's held aloft. I feel like we can't get out of here uh without talking a little bit about what's the weaponization of and i don't want to use white fragility because i know that phrase is not everybody loves that phrase anymore but this idea of using white discomfort over history over racism Mm -hmm. um facts about our own history and what uh white men and women alike (laughs) have done throughout our history Mm -hmm. And with all of the CRT campaign, anti, anti-CRT, even though a lot of them aren't even CRT. But, you know, I was thinking about this show ahead of time and I was thinking, you know, it kind of reminds me of how I used to see all these white women on Facebook just melting down, not just getting mad about something, but just losing it. Like, like, like they were just going to, you know, like puddles on Facebook because someone challenges them on something about racism or this idea that, that, you know, sending your kids to a segregation academy might not be the exact right 
best thing that they should do and that they would melt down, melt down, melt down. Now, I, you know, I don't have as many of those women on my page anymore, <laughs> but, but, but now we're seeing, it's almost like they've mm-hmm. taken that, mm-hmm. you know, tendency and then just these mm-hmm. political strategists and this just blown it up mm-hmm. into this nationwide attempt, yeah. right. To use it to, mm-hmm. to maintain power uh, white supremacist power, really, um, yeah. because, uh, you know, and so many of them are white women. And I believe very strongly that it's white women who are the main target of this. Mm-hmm. You know, the ones who mm-hmm. might vote one way or another, depending right. if you right. can't scare the shit out of them. And so yeah. um, so it's just this idea of this, 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 we can't feel uncomfortable. Our kids can't be right. made feel uncomfortable by mm-hmm. by real history you know yeah. so we're not going to let you put something in the right. in the math books so right. i don't know i just i'm curious what you might have to add to that conversation yeah well i mean lots as you might yeah, imagine i can't imagine <laughs> yes i knew you would well, one, one of i'll tell two quick stories one is a story that came to me from a reported piece that was in rolling stone magazine right after the election in 2016 and the reporter went to whatever hotel in dc where richard spencer a figure of the far right was having a a meeting some might say a rally in celebration of what's his name getting elected in 2016 and this was the you may have you may remember this from the news reports at the time if you have recovered from the shock of all that of him in this hotel ballroom sort of saying heil to the guy who just got elected and and all these people raising their right arms in this kind of Hitler salute and there was an intrepid reporter from uh, Rolling Stone who went and interviewed people in that hotel room and one of the people that she came across was a young white woman named Emily. I don't know if that's her actual name. And she was in her uh, 20s. And the woman, you know, the reporter just asked her, so how did how did you end up here in this in this hotel ballroom in November of 2016? And she said, and she told this really compelling story that I will never forget. She said, when I was young, around 11, the teacher in my classroom made us read To Kill a Mockingbird. And she also told us that white people were responsible for slavery. And I just had so much guilt, young Emily says, until I found 4chan, an obscure place on the internet, and there I found this guy, Richard Spencer, and his teaching. So basically, because she had felt uncomfortable reading To Kill a Mockingbird and learning about the history of slavery, she went running into the arms of the far right of white supremacist group. And basically what I'm trying to do with this book is to say Mm. there's got to be another way. We have got to reach young white people and say, yes, we're part of the system. It's terrible and we can unmake it. And the other thing, the other story I wanted to say just in response is that, you know, a wonderful colleague of mine, Alyssa Bowen and I wrote a piece for Truth Out about the dark money behind Mm -hmm. basically the billionaire funders who Mm -hmm. are behind these uh, school board shenanigans and all the rest of it. So the place where I really want to get people like me who are nice white ladies, I really want to enlist their anger 
is to enlist their anger at these billionaires who are trying to manipulate us mm -hmm. as white women into doing this kind of work for them. It's them who's going to, it's mm -hmm. them who's going to benefit, not us and not our children. In fact, if you don't want your children to end up in white supremacist groups, then you need to have these uncomfortable conversations when they're much younger. And trust me, the young people are not the ones who are uncomfortable with this. It's the adults. I'm still sitting here kind of shaking my head at the idea of being radicalized by To Kill a Mockingbird. But <laughs> I know, I know. But it starts somewhere. I, I just wanted to find Emily and just like, and just, girl, let's talk. Let's Honey. just give me a, let me give you a hug. And let's talk about this. Let's, let's talk. Oh, man. And, and, you know, I feel like I need a slight history break here. I, I always like to uh, lift up a book that was, that I read, you know, I think it came out just in fairly recent years. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. Are you familiar with um, uh, Elizabeth McRae's Women of 100%. Mass Resistance? 100%. Oh it's a great book. It's a oh great book. God. I was just on a panel with uh, Elizabeth McRae the other day. She's a wonderful scholar. She's terrific. And it's a great book. My, the line that I always pull from that book, which I use a lot in my talks, is, White women were the constant gardeners of segregation. I just think it's such a great phrase. And it's so, it so captures, you know, the role that white women played in the civil rights movement. Well, you know, and something I like to say about this book, because I learned a lot from this book mm -hmm. and as, a, you know, in, in the last decade. And, mm -hmm. and, um, and, and what I want to say to people is that what she does is that she writes about all of these very powerful women uh, in Mississippi, but other states, including the North, I, I think Boston is it comes into play mm -hmm. in this book and mm -hmm. some other places who play real serious roles in this idea of racial uh, integrity, you know, mm -hmm. this idea of to fight race mixing and blah, blah, yeah. you know, all of yeah. these things. And, and I always, when I read the book, one of my first thoughts was, you know, it's so sexist not to give these terrible women full credit for what they did and exactly. really and to just assume yep and just to assume that it was all white men and that right. you know and the white yep. women well they're kind of going along with it instead of like really leading yep. a lot what, like, of what was going on full agency and supportive like full agency yep. and leadership and so i you know I, we can't talk more about it we don't have time but i really recommend this book to, yeah, to yeah, folks i mean it's a, just a terrific powerful book um i'm being told that we're in at the end of the show jesse okay. i just i know we can talk all night <laughs> i know i know thank you so much for having me this is such fun i really appreciate it well thank you so much for being here and for what you do keep holding us white women accountable that's what i have to say msp live is a production of the mississippi free press readers supported solutions journalism for the magnolia state you'll find it at mfp.ms MFP live streams most Thursdays on the MFP's Facebook and YouTube pages where you can listen live and participate in the show by commenting. The MFP live podcast is an edited version of the live show. The hosts of MFP live are MFP co-founders Donna Ladd and Kimberly Griffin. This episode of MFP live was produced by Todd Stauffer. The podcast was produced by Courtney Munkew and it's available on popular listening apps and platforms. Learn more at mfp.ms slash live.